Good afternoon. There it is. All right. Good afternoon, gentlemen. And uh, just want to thank you for coming to this session. Just to make sure a few people have asked me, is this this session or is this another session? This is the session uh, called God Crucified, the death of God and the deity of Christ. If you're in the wrong session, I'm about to pray. Close my eyes. You can walk out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I know, yeah, this is... Uh, the session on the, the death of God. And let's, let me pray before we begin and as we enter into this, this uh, difficult but this meaningful and this central uh, discussion in the Bible. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to come before you. We thank you that we're able to understand the truth that you have left for us. Lord, some of these truths that are so difficult to understand and to grasp logically, and so we trust you in our faith, Lord, believing that what your word says is true, even if our minds aren't able to fathom it. But I pray that as we look at your, pass, your word right now, as we look at various passages right now, that you would bless our time. Lord, I pray that your name would be glorified through this. Lord, I pray that all of the focus, all of the attention would go on you and that there, there would be nothing in the way of us magnifying your name. Lord, we are vessels, we are broken vessels, and we thank you that you use us. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me right now, that your name be glorified, and that your word be magnified. I pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the death of God, the death of God, difficult words, jarring words to think about. Death is the end of life. But if death is the end of life, then how can we speak about the death of God? God is the God of the living. God created life. God gave life to all of the living beings. God breathed life into man. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. In Acts 3.15, Peter calls Jesus the author of life. So how can we speak of the death of the author of life. And we speak of the death of God because the scriptures speak of the death of God. And one of the passages that speaks about the death of God is Zechariah 12.10, where God himself says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. But as you think about this, the only way that the death of God is possible is if God becomes man and then God dies as man. I remember when I was an undergrad, I had a Jewish friend uh, with whom I spoke about the Bible all the time. And I remember one time we spoke about Zechariah 12.10. And so I came to him and I said to him, look, Zechariah 12.10 says that God dies. And how can God die, I said to him, unless God becomes man? It says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And as I was speaking to him, my desire was to show to him that God becomes man he is God-man and that Jesus is that God-man. And my friend completely rejected this idea and he said that God does not die. God cannot die. He says that in this passage, the people are not looking at God in Zechariah 12. 10. They're looking at something. They're looking at someone, but they're not looking at God. And so he said that God does not die. But the passage is clear. The text is clear here. God says they will look on me whom they have 
pierced. And this is the text that I'd like to look with you today. Zechariah chapter 12 verses 10 through 14. Zechariah 12, 10 through 14 states that God was pierced and that God died. And that with the death of God, the entire nation of Israel repents. This is why we embrace the truth of the death of God. This is why we are not ashamed of this truth in light of the theme of this conference. You know, it may be foolishness to the Gentiles. It may be a stumbling block to the Jews. But as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, it is a point of glory for us. So let me start by reading Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, and then we'll look at the passage uh, step by step. Zechariah 12, 10, and I will pour out, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. Verse 12, And the land will mourn, each family alone, the family of the house of David alone, and their wives alone, the family of the house of Nathan alone, and their wives alone, the family of the house of Levi alone, and their wives alone, the family of the Shimeites alone, and their wives alone. All the families that remain, each family alone and their wives alone. As we look at this text, we see that Zechariah reveals four observations about the death of God and how this death of God achieves the salvation of Israel. And the first observation that Zechariah reveals is that God is the deliverer of sinners through the death of God. God is the deliverer of sinners through the death of God. Zechariah's prophecy begins with God directing the eyes of the people to the death of God and stating how this will achieve the deliverance of sinners. The text says that God is the first to take action, that God is the prime mover in the action that will lead Israel to the repentance. And the action that he takes here is to point the people to the death of God. God says in verse 10, I will pour out. God is the focus of this event. God initiates this act of salvation. The implication of this is absolutely clear. If God doesn't take the first action, the Israelites will never look at him. They look at him only as a reaction to the fact that God acts. And this will result in salvation. Just like the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent in Numbers 21 in order to seek healing, so they will look at God here in Zechariah 12.10 to receive salvation. But they will have this look of faith only because God initiates this for them. Now the way that God will bring this about is by pouring out His Spirit upon the Israelites. The text says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and of supplication. This act of saturating the people with God's spirit is exactly what we see in other passages as well. Ezekiel 39, 29, God says, I will not hide my face from them any longer for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. The only way that God's people could change is if God gives them his spirit and he does this invasive and overwhelming work within their hearts. 
and only then do they turn to God and only then do they repent. And Zechariah notes here that this will include all Israel, the house of David or the royal house and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and that's the regular people. There's no distinction between upper class, between lower class when it comes to the salvation of God. All are equal. And in Revelation 1.7, in fact, it goes one, uh, one step further, John refers to Zechariah 12.10 and he applies this passage to all of the sinners from the entire world. In Revelation 1.7, John says, Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. But in all of this, God is the one who gets the credit for initiating the repentance for all of all his people. And this is true in all of redemptive history. God is always the one who initiates and who completes salvation. Think about the famous passage, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He seeks, he saves. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Ephesians 2.4. We were dead in our sins, but God saved us. And Hebrews 2.10 calls Jesus the author of salvation. So what we see in Zechariah 12.10 is characteristic of who God is in all of Scripture and in the entire plan of redemption. It is God who is the deliverer of sinners. He's the one who designed the plan of salvation. He's the one who initiates the plan of salvation. He's the one who finishes the plan of salvation. And the way that God achieves this plan of redemption here in Zechariah 12.10 is by pointing the people to a specific historical event. And that event is the death of God. And this takes us to the second observation. The observation is that God dies. The death of God. God directs all the attention of the people on a humanly unfathomable revelation that God, that Yahweh, dies. Zechariah 12.10 says, I, that is Yahweh, will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me, that is Yahweh, whom they have pierced. Since God is speaking here, and since God is speaking about himself, God is saying that he is the one who is pierced. God declares about himself that God dies. The term pierced here is a vivid image of a literal, of a violent, of a fatal blow. In Numbers 25, verse 8, you remember Zimri and Cosby, they were engaged in sexual illicit relations in front of all of Israel and so Phineas comes in his righteous anger, and it says that he pierced them with his spear to their death. Judges 9.54, a woman drops a large stone on Abimelech's head, and she injures him, but he does not die. So then Abimelech turns to his armor bearer, and he commands him to pierce him to his death. And even in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 3, this is the very next chapter, Zechariah says that if there is a false prophet in the family in Israel, the parents of that false prophet will pierce 
their own child to his death. And this is the same verb that is used here in Zechariah 12.10. God says about himself that he is pierced, that God dies. And the fact that Yahweh is killed is obviously a challenging thought to process. This was jarring to the Israelite community of the Old Testament. I think it's still even jarring. It's difficult for us to think about, even though we have much more revelation in the New Testament that explains this. You know, but to say that Jesus died, we don't make light of it, but we understand it. To say that God died, it's difficult. But we know that Jesus is God, and so we understand it. To say that Yahweh died, that really prompts people to say, are you sure that's what the text says? Well, not only does the text say this here in Zechariah, Yahweh himself says this. They will look on me whom they have pierced. And we can see that this was a major challenge for the Israelites throughout history when we look at some of the passages, some of the texts that they translated and some of the interpretations that they have, how they wrestled with this passage in Zechariah 12.10. The Septuagint. That's the early Greek translation about 100 or 250 uh, years before Christ. Translates the text in this way. Listen to this. It says, I will pour out a spirit of grace and compassion on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they shall look to me because they have danced triumphantly. So instead of whom they have pierced, the translation says, because they have danced triumphantly. How do you go from pierce to dance? Right now, first of all, the translators did this because they had a problem with God dying. You can't have God die. So they're trying to fix the problem that they feel that they see in the text. But secondly, how do you go from pierce to dance? Well, in Hebrew, if you move the letters around of the word pierce, then you end up with the word dance. So if you think about the word bat in English, like you swing a bat, and you change the letters and you make it into tab, like you press tab on your computer, that's what they're doing. Or you think about the word listen, and you switch the letters around, it becomes silent. The same letters are used, but the meaning is totally different when you rearrange these letters. And evidently, that's what the translators did here because they thought, surely this is not saying that God died. It must be saying something else. So they rearranged the letters and the word pierce was changed to dance. Once you do this, you no longer have God dying. Another text is Targum Zechariah, which is a translation of the Old Testament into Aramaic. And this one was written after AD 70, so after Christ. And it also wrestles with this passage, Zechariah 12.10. And it says this, I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of mercy and compassion, and they shall seek me because they were exiled. So here they changed whom they pierced to because they were exiled. Now, we ask, how does this happen? Again, you can't have God die, 
So you ask, what can the text be saying? What can it mean except that God dies? Well, the Targumist or the translator into Aramaic, he concludes that the word pierce is figurative. It's not literal. Nobody dies. And instead, he says, the translator says, the Israelite people suffer when they go into exile. But again, this is their attempt at solving the problem so that God does not die. There's another passage. This is a Jewish commentary from 600 or so AD, the Babylonian Talmud, Sukkah 52a. And it also wrestles with this passage and it looks at it and asks the question, who is the me in this passage? Who is uh, who is it talking about? God cannot die, so who is the me referring to? And ultimately, the commentary concludes that the me is referring to the Messiah. Not Jesus, but a different Messiah. Messiah ben Yosef, Messiah son of Joseph, who for them is not God. But this again shows that the death of God is a troubling concept for the human mind. One more example, later on and in a different way, various Hebrew manuscripts, manuscripts that were not relied upon for the Hebrew Bible that we have because of the quality of those manuscripts, but these manuscripts also struggled with God dying, and so they changed the word me to the word him. They changed, they will look on me, whom they have pierced, to they will look on him, whom they have pierced. And this solves the difficulty because the him is not directly God. Maybe it's not even necessarily God in that manuscript. But these manuscripts reveal a clear agenda. They can't have God dying, and so they make this change. Now, at this point, you might immediately be thinking, but isn't that what John 19.37 says? When John is describing the crucifixion of Jesus... He refers to Zechariah 12.10 in that passage in John 19.37. And he says, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. That's the English, typical English translation. But when you look at the Greek, the text of John is actually different. And it's different from the Hebrew manuscripts that are changing Zechariah 12.10. Literally, John says, they shall look on the one whom they pierced. So John is definitely doing something different here from the, from the manuscripts. But John still says they will look on the one whom they pierced, not on me whom they pierced. So why does he do that? Well, we'll look at this more closely just a little bit later. But the difference between John and the manuscripts and the fact itself that John is looking on Christ who is hanging on the cross all of this shows that John is not trying to avoid God dying, but that he is identifying the God who does die on the cross in the person of Jesus. John is trying to have us see God on the cross while the manuscripts are trying to remove the death of God from the text. But as we look at these various ways that the Israelites wrestled with the death of God in Zechariah 12.10, we see that this was a major challenge for them. And yet, God himself says this very thing about himself. So we ask the question, how is it possible that God dies? 
And being on this side of the cross, having just read John as well, we understand that there's only one possible way to make sense of this. God becomes man. And God dies as a man. And this man is God-man. He is fully God and he is fully man. And this is our third observation, the deity of the Messiah. The deity of the Messiah. In order for God to die, he has to become man and he has to die as a man who is God. This is exactly what we read in John 19:37 when John tells us that Zechariah's prophecy means that Jesus is the God who was pierced. John describes Jesus hanging on the cross and this makes John remember the words of Yahweh in Zechariah 12:10 and while thinking of Yahweh but speaking of Jesus on the cross John says and again another scripture says they shall look on the one whom they have pierced. John takes the words of God, they will look on me whom they pierced. He applies them to Jesus on the cross and he says, they shall look on the one, Jesus, whom they pierced. John is saying that the speaker of Zechariah 12.10 is now hanging on the cross. The me of Zechariah 12.10 is the one of John 19.37. But still, why does John say the one, or sometimes or often translated him, instead of me? Well, what John is doing is he's speaking about the death of God from his human vantage point. When God was speaking in Zechariah 12.10, he was speaking about himself, so he said, they will look on me. Now that John is speaking in John 19.37, John is speaking about God. So he says they will look on the one or on him. John is giving us an exposition, his exposition of Zechariah 12.10. And he's actually doing exactly what Zechariah 12.10 itself does in the second part of the verse. Zechariah 12.10 says they will look on me whom they have pierced. But then the verse changes perspectives and says, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. John takes this human perspective of the second part of the verse and he applies it to the entire verse because he's now looking, literally looking upon God on the cross from a human perspective. John is definitely being interpretive here, but he's following the model that is already set for him in Zechariah 12.10. And this interpretive approach is actually characteristic of what John is doing in this portion of Scripture because that's exactly what he does in John 19.36, the verse right before that. John considers Jesus on the cross. He considers the fact that none of Jesus' bones are broken. And so he says, for the things came to pass in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. That's what John says about Jesus. Well, the verses that John is referring to are Exodus 12.46, Numbers 9.12, and Psalm 34.20. But Exodus 12.46 and Numbers 
9.12 are speaking of a lamb, not a human. And Psalm 34.20 speaks of a human, but uses different language. And despite the differences, nevertheless, when John looks at Jesus on the cross and he sees that none of his bones are broken, he takes these passages and he uses his own words to apply those passages to Jesus. And John is doing the very same thing here in Zechariah with respect to Zechariah 12.10. He refers to Zechariah 12.10, interprets the meaning of it, and he directs our attention to Jesus on the cross. And by this, John makes the point that the text of Zechariah 12.10 is referring and it's fulfilled in Jesus. And the implication of this is massive. John is saying that Jesus is Yahweh and that Yahweh is Jesus. That's the point that John makes. And this is not the only time that John equates Jesus with Yahweh. In John 1.23, John says that Jesus is the one whom Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 40 verse 3. When he said, prepare the way for Yahweh, he applies that to Jesus. In John 12.41, John writes about the vision of Isaiah from Isaiah 6. And John says that the person that Isaiah saw was Jesus. John says in 1241, these things Isaiah saw because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory, and he spoke about him, that is Jesus. Well, Isaiah is explicit that the person he was seeing in Isaiah 6 is Yahweh. Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah says in that passage, woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. So now in John 19, 37, John further takes this point and he further demonstrates this theological principle that Jesus is Yahweh by equating Jesus with Yahweh in Zechariah 12, 10. Zechariah 12, 10 makes it clear that Yahweh dies. John 19, 37 applies this to Jesus and in the end, there is no way to avoid the fact that Jesus is God. But now we can ask the question, so what is the outcome of the fact that God died and that Jesus is God? And this is our final observation. The despair of Israel. The despair of Israel. The death of God means life for Israel through the despair and the repentance of Israel, both nationally and individually. After the Israelites realized that they crucified their God, their divine Messiah, despair completely overwhelms them. And this despair is the one, the despair that results in repentance. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that there's a sorrow that leads to death and there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. Well, Zechariah shows that the sorrow of the Israelites here is the sorrow that brings about the repentance and the salvation of the Israelites. Zechariah 31 actually captures this when it says that a fountain is opened up for sin and impurity for the Israelites to cleanse them from their sin. Now, this repentance is seen within the Israelites through various expressions of their despair. First, we see that the despair of Israel is over the death of God. Zechariah 12.10, again, let me read this. It says, they will mourn for him, that is God, 
as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him, that is God, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The people are weeping over the fact that they killed God. I already noted earlier that the way that God dies is by becoming man in the person of Jesus. But understand that here in Zechariah 12.10, the emphasis is that God is killed. And that the people mourn for the fact that they killed God. Secondly, we see that the despair of Israel is so intense that only the most horrific personal and national tragedies can try to capture how deeply the people grieve. Mourning over an only child means that the family line cannot continue because the only child is dead. Think about Genesis 22 when Abraham was about to kill Isaac. That was his only source of progeny. If Isaac dies, there is no one to carry the line of Abraham forward. And it says, weeping bitterly over the firstborn. And that means that the inheritance that was supposed to go to the firstborn and to carry the name of the family forward is cut off. The double portion of the, of the firstborn from Deuteronomy 21. The double portion becomes no portion because the firstborn is dead. The mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo refers to the mourning of the righteous King Josiah. King Josiah offered a glimmer of hope, of righteousness to the people of Israel in a time when sin was increasing and it was becoming rampant and people were rejecting God. Josiah found the Torah that was abandoned. He restored the temple and its practices. He restored the Passover. He got rid of the false priests and the false priest practices and the sacrifices to idols. But then suddenly and unexpectedly, he was killed in the battle against ne by Necho, the king of Egypt. And this brought tremendous grief to the people. And so you think about these examples of tragedy and grief. And you see that the reason Zechariah includes these various examples is because it's hard to capture the severity of pain when you realize that you killed God. You know, it's like losing your only child, you say. But it's so much more. It's like losing your firstborn, but it's not because it's so much greater. It's like losing the king that you loved, and that doesn't capture it. But in describing all of these images of grief, Zechariah is trying to convey the fierceness and the severity and the intensity that the people experienced when they realized that they killed God. So first, the despair of Israel is over the death of God. Secondly, the despair of Israel is intense and it's incomparable. Thirdly, we see that the despair will be national, encompassing all of Israel. Verse 12 says, and the land will mourn. Verse 14, all the families that remain will mourn. In other words, this is not a regional revival. It's a full-blown national revival. In fact, Zechariah is forming here an inclusio to make this point. Verse 12, the beginning says the land. And then verse 14, the end, says all the families. And they say, he says this at both ends to make the point that this is the holistic picture. All of the Israelites repent. And then fourthly, in addition to being national, 
we see that this despair is also individual. It's individualistic. Not only will the nation as a whole repent, as a whole nation, but each person within that nation will repent as well. At the beginning of this section, verse 12, it says that each family alone, and then at the end of this section, verse 14 says, again, each family alone will repent. And so again, Zechariah is forming an inclusio here to show that this is the holistic picture Every Israelite will repent. And then to develop this, to make this clear, Zechariah begins to list the various categories of families in Israel. It says the family of the house of David alone and their wives alone. That's the royal line. Sometimes we feel that the rich, the famous, the powerful, that they're hard to, hard-hearted against the gospel, the hardest people to reach with the gospel. And I think it's rightly so that we feel this because Jesus himself says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. But in this case, we see that the royal line, that's the rich, the famous, the prominent, the influential, they will repent. Then Zechariah says, the family of the house of Nathan alone and their wives alone will repent. The family of the house of Nathan is probably, very probably, the line of descendants that came from David through David's son, Nathan. And this is significant. The royal line went from David through Solomon. The non-royal line went from David through Nathan. So by listing both of these names, David and Nathan, Zechariah includes the entirety of the house of David in repentance, both royalty and the non-royalty. Then Zechariah mentions the family of the house of Levi alone and their wives alone. And this is the priestly line that went from Jacob's son Levi through Aaron and his sons to be priests. And what this shows is that no one is good enough. Everyone repents, including the priests. And finally, Zechariah mentions the family of the Shimeites alone and their wives alone. And this is the non-priestly line from Levi that The people of that line helped the priests with various temple duties. So just like Zechariah describes the repentance of the royal and then the non-royal Israelites of the Davidic house, he also describes the repentance of the priestly and the non-priestly families of the Levitical house. And then with each of these groups, we see that the wives weep alone as well. And the fact that the wives are weeping alone, that they're mentioned here, shows that the husbands are not representing them as the heads of the families in this act of repentance. This is something that the wives do on their own. Each and every person does this out of their own conviction. And then as part of this focus on the individual, on the individual repentance of Israel, notice the dominating word in this section. The word alone. Listen, verse 12. And the land will mourn each family alone. The family of the house of David alone and their wives alone. The family of the house of Nathan alone and their wives alone. The family of the house of Levi alone and their wives alone. The family of the Shimeites alone and their wives alone. All the families that remain, each family alone and their wives alone. The word alone appears 11 times in this section. If a text wants to emphasize a point, that text will repeat a word or a portion two or three times. 
when a text repeats itself 11 times, it's saying that this is massive, that this is a thorough individual repentance within that nation. So with these 11 repetitions of alone, not only do we get the meaning that this is going to be individual repentance, we also get to see the individuality exemplified. You know, every time it says alone, it's as if you see an individual repenting. He alone will repent, and she alone will repent, and he alone will repent, and she alone will repent, and so on and so on. Zechariah wants us to understand this both intellectually and then he wants us to see this practically. This will be the result of the despair of Israel. Every person will personally respond in, response, in, in repentance for the death of God. So we may ask, well, what will they say when they undergo this repentance? Well, what do you say when you realize that you're responsible for the death of the one that you've been waiting for all of your life? What do you say when you realize that you're responsible for the death of God? Isaiah 53 as a whole captures the response of an Israelite who rejects the Messiah and then realizes that he's been rejecting the Messiah who is the source of his salvation. And so looking at verse 5, Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's a portion of what we hear during the repentance of the Israelites. And then Zechariah 13.9 records the climactic point of this repentance of Israel. Zechariah 13.9, in that verse, God says, They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is my God. This is what the death of God achieves. Well, let me conclude by asking, when will all this take place? When will the Israelites look at God and recognize that they pierced Him and then repent and turn to Him? Matthew 23 Verses 37 through 39, when the Israelites, after the Israelites have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, Jesus says, You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you will not see me until you repent. So the repentance of Israel and the return of Christ will coincide. In fact, Israel's repentance will usher in Jesus' return. You will see me only when you Repent. And so at that time, the words that Paul writes in Romans eleven twenty six will come true. All Israel will be saved. And then Matthew twenty four thirty says this and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So ultimately, the death of God will end with the glory of God. 